I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. I'm So my guests today on the program are not any members of Fleetwood Mac, but I thought they were the perfect symbolic band to play considering who my guest actually is. Taylor Jenkins Reed is the guest in question, and she's the author of the new book, Daisy Jones and the Six, a fictional account of a fictional band that was inspired by, well, you guessed it, Fleetwood Mac. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let me tell you a little bit about Taylor Jenkins Reed and Daisy Jones and the Six. Daisy Jones and the Six tells the story of the rise and fall of a 70s band modeled in the mold of Fleetwood Mac. The tensions, artistic differences, and personal frustrations all combine to tell a compelling story about music and love and friendship. But here's the catch. That story is told by every member of the band, which means everyone gets their say. Not just Buckingham and not just Nick's, or as they appear in the Daisy Jones universe, Daisy Jones and Billy Dunn. Utilizing the oral history format, Daisy Jones and the Six has all of the band members stitching together a narrative where the events don't change, but the connective tissue of all the memories before and after those events do. In other words, everyone remembers the same thing differently. It's like Rumors meets Rashomon meets VH1's Behind the Music. And the big reveal at the end is why the band broke up at the height of their fame, which is an event that everyone remembers, but yeah, they all remember it differently. Proving once again that musicians, though artistically amazing and wildly charismatic and certainly lovable, are also, you know, kind of a pain in the neck. Daisy Jones and the Six is a great read and a great rock and roll novel, and soon it will be a series on HBO. I'll let Taylor Jenkins Reid explain that to you. But before we get to that, let me tell you a little bit about her. Born in Maryland, Taylor Jenkins Reid used to work in film casting, and then one day she said, forget films, I want to write books. And since then, she's written six of them, including The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, Forever Interrupted, and Maybe in Another Life. Our conversation was recorded in front of a live audience because, you know, when you do it in front of a dead audience, uh, the jokes don't land. Anyway, Taylor was wonderful. The, uh, the audience loved her, and, uh, and I thought it came out great. Now, there were no microphones, but the whole thing was live streamed, and the camera uh, was literally about two inches from my face. So you should be able to hear us okay, but we are super lo-fi, okay? Keep that in mind. But... It's a great conversation, and I want you to hear it. So I'm presenting it to you here, uh, unplugged. All right? Okay. Here it is, me and Taylor Jenkins Reed having a little chat right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
first of all, I love the book. Thank you. It's really remarkable. And for those of you who have not read it, I will do my best not to spoil anything. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of things that happen. I know. I think you're, I think you're safe. Okay. <clears throat> um, tell me a little bit about where the idea for the book originally came from. It came from a couple of different places at once. It, it's, it's almost a difficult question to answer because there are about four answers and they're all true, but they all sound like they're different answers. But I was, I've always been obsessed with Stevie Nicks and Lindsay Buckingham um, ever since I saw The Dance when I was um, a teenager. Uh, which was their reunion tour that they did in, I mean, <clears throat> I saw it on VH1, I didn't go to the concert, but, um, and I, I was really taken with the way that they interacted with each other. It seemed very obvious to me, even though I knew nothing about them, that these were two people who had romantic feelings for each other. Um, so that was part of it. I was always fascinated by that, that, that they have this past and they work together and then they write songs about each other and then they make each other sing them. That's like fascinating to me. Um, the other piece of it was a band called The Civil Wars, which <clears throat> I believe they broke up in 2014. Um, and it's this, for, for anyone who doesn't know, it was a band, it was just a man and a woman, and they were both married to other people. And they would write these incredibly romantic and intimate songs. And I was listening to them, and I thought, oh, these people are clearly together. Um, and, but they weren't. And I was so curious how they could make something sound so intimate together um, and to have such a creative chemistry um, but then not actually be romantically involved and then they broke up and they never have talked about why um, and I just always wanted to know why so so it was sort of like I was thinking in my head I would love to make up um, a man and a woman who have this creative chemistry and break up but then answer the question of why and then it was like well then I can really get into like Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham and <clears throat> Joni Mitchell and Graham Nash or Johnny Cash and June Carter like all of these these male female duos who have a complicated relationship both professionally and personally how long were you carrying around the idea before you actually broke ground and started writing you know it's funny I, I think I actually had the idea for a very long time but I didn't think that I was allowed to write it. it. It's weird. I So I wrote The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, which is about a movie star. And I really enjoyed writing about a fictional famous person. I really liked writing about star image and the difference between what something looks like on the outside versus what it was like to live it. Um, and I finished that book and I was thinking, okay, well, I did that. I, I wrote about a famous person, I can't do that again. Um, that would be too similar or, um, you know, I'll, I'll, for some reason I just had this idea in my head that I couldn't do that. But I really was, when I was thinking about where my brain wanted to go for the next book, for a long time I'd just been really nostalgic for, um, for these romantic rock couples. And so... I finished Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. I had my daughter literally four days after turning in the edits on that book. Um, I took three months off to learn how to be a mom. Um, and then it was, I had always said, October, I'll come back to work. I'll start thinking about what I want to write. And it just, it just I kept saying, I, I know I've told myself I'm not supposed to, but I really want to write a book about rock. So 
that's when I pitched the idea to my agent and I had said, I, I prepared two options because I felt like she was going to tell me not to do it. I don't know why I thought that. So I was like, I can do this one book, which ended up oddly enough becoming a short story that I wrote um, that was released last year called Evidence of the Affair, um, which is just letters back and forth between these two people whose spouses are having an affair. I was like, I can do this or I could do a story about the rise and fall of a 70s rock band written in an oral history. And I was continuing on and my agent was like, stop, stop right there, that's what you're doing. And I was so excited. I was like, oh my God, you think this is a good idea? Um, and then it was, I just hit the ground running and I was off. The oral history narrative is sort of a, it's a, it's a tip of the hat to the VH1 years. Yeah. Those behind oh, the music, yeah. right? Yes, it's absolutely. the same format. Yeah, yeah. It's behind the music, it's rock documentaries, it's the oral histories that we read about now where um, you know, there's an oral history of Saturday Night Live that came out a couple mm -hmm. of years ago that was really good. There was a uh, oral history of CAA, the Hollywood agency that came out a couple of years ago that I really liked. Um, there's even an oral <laughs> history in Vanity Fair of the Laurel Canyon scene, um, which, you know, it's Joni Mitchell and it's, um, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and Frank Zappa and, and um, Glenn Frey and, and Mamas and the Papas. Um, that I, I was reading about too, that I was like, this is just the best way to tell this story. It's so fun. And the other thing too is like, I am trying to create a fake reality <laughs> where Evelyn Hugo is a real movie star and Daisy Jones and the Six is a real band. Um, and, and in fact, I, in a very sort of meta way, they, they do exist in the same universe. There's one character who is in both books. He's in Daisy Jones and the Six very, very briefly. and um, it's almost you blink and you'll miss it but i wanted to um further this world where there are fake movie stars and bands that, that um that you can lose yourself in but for if i wanted it to feel real the best way to do that was to make it feel like nonfiction. so i took a nonfiction format and fictionalized it and i think that does add to the voyeuristic sort of gossipy um vibe of the whole thing and also you sort of very skillfully juxtaposed real people like Linda Ronstadt, yeah. Springsteen, yeah. but you didn't go too heavy on that. So you, you have your the, the sort of alternate universe, yes. right? Juxtaposed with the real people. Yes. It's a very delicate balance Yeah, because, you know, you have to make, I'm making the argument that Daisy Jones and the Six was the biggest band of the late 70s. So I can't, I don't want to draw your attention to the fact that they're not real and put them in the same world as Fleetwood Mac or the Eagles, who were the best-selling bands of the late 1970s. Um, and yet I want you to feel as if this world is the world that you live in. So mentioning Linda Ronstadt or Springsteen gives it a little bit of authenticity, but doesn't, I'm not gilding the lily too much in terms of um, what I'm trying to, to claim. Daisy Jones and the Six can take place of the Eagles because in this world there there is no band the Eagles. Um, but I was very, very deliberate about it. So there are a lot of drafts. Like I did a number of drafts of this book and it was the first draft there would be like a way more references than should have been in and I would pull back or um, there wouldn't be enough. And I'd say, well, I actually think I can, I can use this moment as my Linda Ronstadt moment. You know, I was, I tried to be very, very careful with choosing when to evoke real popular culture and when to 
keep you lost in this fake popular culture that I'm creating. But it works because we even the woman who I can remember her name who hosts SNL. Yes, yes, right? yes. Like, Lisa Crown. Yeah, right. and she yeah. we totally believe that she yeah. is. Yeah, a Mira. Huge, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like, we totally buy it. Yeah. Well, so that's the other thing is that um, I'm very conscious of. Um, I love it when writers take a real famous person and put them in a book and use them as a character. I think it's incredibly compelling. I don't have the confidence to do that. It's so audacious to me to say, well, I think this is what, you know, so-and-so would say. So I'm very skittish about that. So what I do is if a person is going to factor into this story in any way, shape, or form, they have to be completely 100% fictional. And if I'm going to make them, if I have to, if I want to make the audience feel like, oh, wow, he married Lisa Crown. Then, then I have to ex establish very subtly who Lisa Crown is in the world of popular culture throughout the book. So by the time you get to her and what happens, you care. It would be so much easier if I was just like, and then he married Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> and everyone would be like, oh, wow. But I can't, I don't want to use, you know, her, her um, I don't want to leverage her fame in order to get the moment. So it does take a lot of fine-tuning to create fake famous people that seem like real famous people by the time you interact with them but just that they're occupying the space like yes. she's hosting SNL yes. so we know she must right be, so she must be she a, must big, be a deal, big deal right yeah, yeah. And, and also like we have archetypes for these things and it's easy to call upon them um, and and so you know you can you can gesture to you know it's it's this um, decade and they're doing this particular thing and their name is this and and a lot of that it does the work for you like Lisa Crown you figure she's you know the way people are talking about her she must be this beautiful hot actress um, you know and and I can I can weave that in a little bit more subtly that way yeah I love that and someone asked me to describe the book and I said well it's kind of like rumors meets Rashomon oh right? cool yes I love that yes because nobody remembers anything yeah right even yeah. like you know I was wearing a jacket well yeah. she was wearing no jacket yeah. it's right. like, oh, wait, hang on a second so on the VH1 things, people's memories, for the most part, are fairly on. Yeah. Here, sometimes it's literally like this. Yes. Right? So I don't, I think it's very interesting. When you're creating nonfiction, you're supposed to create a narrative. You're taking real life and you're creating a narrative from it. I don't think you can ever take real life and create a consistent narrative from it. No one agrees on, you know, on anything. We're all going to walk away from this evening and have a bunch of different stories about what happened or what was said because because we're coming at it from different spots. No one actually agrees on on any given thing because we're bringing so much to it. When it's nonfiction, the goal is is to say no, here's the truth. Mm. When it's fiction, I have the advantage of saying, well, what is the truth? You know, the, the truth is somewhere in between everything that, that all of these people are saying. So it was really fun and also maddening for me because I was, I'm trying to be um, almost more honest than, than nonfiction can be in that way um, in saying I don't think that Daisy Jones is going to remember accurately something that happened 40 years ago. She's going to remember it as she would like to remember it. She's going to remember how it felt, not, not maybe the facts. Um, and so, and that goes for everyone in the book, which is why they, they don't agree all the time. But hopefully the fun of that is that as you're reading, there will be characters that you 
like more or you like less and people will be drawn to one character or another and that will influence the way that you're listening to the story and the people that you believe if, if you like Warren more and Warren says you know she was wearing a jacket and, or you like Karen more and Karen says she was wearing a tank top you're gonna walk away from it being like well I think she's probably wearing a tank top you know or I think you I think she's probably wearing a jacket and so two people can read this book and have a different experience from it you know albeit a subtle one but but somewhat different and to be fair there's a lot of drugs so, yeah right I so, mean I yeah. it's real hazy man right yeah and how do you remember anything yeah. there are musicians who literally say I don't remember the 10 years oh between yeah this oh period sure of time. sure I mean and that's that's like when we're reading rock biographies which I read a lot of for for the research of this it is a little bit suspect you know I'm like reading Keith Richards biography and I'm like I don't know if I trust you Keith Richards like mm -hmm. I know what you were up to and I'm not sure that your memory um, holds up um, and that's a that's a factor of it too and that's something that certain characters own up to within the book and certain characters don't Daisy at one point says like I don't know I was high for a lot of that you know um, whereas whereas Billy will tell you no he knows exactly what happened every single time um, that's that is I think th they both probably have the same level of memory it's just they're different types of people who own up to different things or are more competent or less competent how did you like the oral history format? Was that a liberating format for you? Was that fun or was that restrictive? Yeah, it was both. It was very fun um, and, and in some ways freed me up to not give every piece of information. I, I have for a very long time felt beholden to um, this imaginary reader and thinking like, well, what do they want to know? How do I give them what they want to know? And with this, sometimes I just couldn't, you know, like if I, if I want you to know exactly what Daisy Jones is wearing at every single moment of this book, that's not realistic because people are not going to remember what she was wearing four years ago. They're just not going to. So if, so I can give you a detail because maybe they're like, you know, I think she was, she was always wearing her hoop earrings or, you know, I can, cr I can evoke a mood. I can, I can gesture to a style, but I can't describe it for you because I don't have anyone to do that realistically. So that was really difficult, but also really exciting because I, it, it felt like a lesson in how to make sure that every piece of information that you're giving the reader is filtered through the question of like, why is this character saying this? Mm. I had to earn every single detail that I gave you because it's through a specific character. And so it made me very conscious of how often in a book I'm giving the reader information that maybe they don't need. Um, so it was almost like in being restricted, I was learning a new skill, which is sort of thrilling and maddening at the same time. <clears throat> Music fans can be really tough. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I wrote an article on the Stone Roses a couple of years ago, and this guy wrote me a note. He said, you didn't mention some bizarre technical guitar mm -hmm. thing. And then he wrote, P.S., I can't believe you even teach college, right? <laughs> like, yeah. how do you yeah. make that mistake? And yeah. I thought, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. So were you worried about wading into the rock and roll pantheon and worried about those kinds of people yeah. who say, you know, you got this wrong, you got this right? Yeah. I thought you did an absolutely perfect job. Oh, thank the, you. It was very authentic. Thank you. Um, so I was not worried, um, but not for the right reasons. It wasn't that I was brave um, it, or, or confident. It's that when I'm writing a book, I really am not thinking about the fact that it's gonna be published. I really am thinking entirely on how do I make this the best book possible for people like me that would wanna read this book. And I forget sometimes that it's going to be published. And then when it's done, 
I start to panic and I'm like, oh God, oh God. Um, <laughs> and with this, I definitely felt that. I'm out of my comfort zone. I am not a music person. I learned all of this for this book. But but look, in, in going out and meeting people and talking to people about this book, there are a lot of people that have come up to me and been like, well, why'd you choose the 70s? And I'm like, same cool, you know? And, and, and I don't have much more of a reason than that. It just, I had a nostalgia for a time that I didn't live through and I wanted to feel like I lived through it. A lot of people, especially, um, you know, men that are really into classic rock, have been like, well, actually, I don't think that was the best time in rock. And, and like, they're probably right, you know? I'm coming at this like, from a very specific and narrow viewpoint. I'm not a rock historian. I'm here to have a good time. I'm here to have fun and to tell a good story and hope that I'm writing a story that you can pick up on a Friday night and by Sunday night you're done with it and you feel like you've been on a wild ride. Um, you know, I'm not trying to create a definitive story of rock in the 70s um so i am freed from the pressure a little bit but but yeah there have absolutely been people that are like well i don't know why you chose that period of time because fleetwood mac is trash and i'm like i love fleetwood mac you don't have to like we can have that conversation for a thousand years you're never going to change my mind that rumors is you know the end all be all of of um of that period of time um so i think i was just i think i it, I was almost too ignorant to be worried, and then it was too late to do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> Did your nostalgia for... I, I love that you're nostalgic for a time that you didn't live through. Yeah. Because right? we're usually nostalgic for times that we did live right, through. Right, right. When you did your research, did it augment the nostalgia? Really? Oh, oh that, it was bad. It was uh -huh. bad. I, I was like, oh, I think I'll write about the, the late 70s because I feel like I can, you know, evoke that time in an easy way. And then I started reading about it, and I was like, God, like, why wasn't I listening to Springsteen every day of my life? Like, what is the matter with me that I spent any day on this earth not listening to Bruce Springsteen? Um, or like Tom Petty. <laughs> um, Tom Petty was another one where, where you know, I got super, super into Tom Petty, and I, I became just completely enamored with him. Um, and then, and then he passed away, and I felt like, what? I was wasting so much time not realizing how much I love Tom Petty. Uh, there are a lot of bands that I listen to all the time now that I would that three years ago I would have told you, not for me. You know, even even um, Led Zeppelin, who I when I started this book I I was like, you know, I don't want to listen to Led Zeppelin. I'm not going to read about Led Zeppelin. I just wasn't into it. Um, and I was wrong about that. You know, like I just. I'm so into this music now, and my husband is very, very fortunate, or, or maybe I should say feels feels very lucky now, because before I wrote this book, he'd be like, what do you want to listen to? And I'm like, Beyonce, Beyonce, only Beyonce. <laughs> and, and he'd be like, totally get it, love Beyonce, but could we listen to anything else? And I'd be like, it's just Beyonce. <laughs> you can choose from these albums, only Beyonce. Um, and now I'll be like, you know, can we listen, you know, do you want to listen to... Um, you know, Linda Ronstadt, or he's like, please God, yes, like anything. He's like, anytime you want to listen to the '70s, um, he's he's much happier now with my my larger um, breadth of musical taste. Did you discover anybody else when you were going through the '70s? Did you find people that were on the radar that you hadn't that you hadn't really known anything about before that maybe were a little more obscure? Um, well, the God's honest truth is, 
that they shouldn't have been obscure to me, but they were. I think I really was truly pretty ignorant about a lot of the music during that time. Um, and so, you know, it was even something like the Kinks. Like, I thought the Kinks were just in the 60s. You know, I th I'm, I'm like, oh, it's Lola, you know. And then I the album that they put out, I think it was in 1975, Sleepwalker, um, I was like, wait, the, the Kinks were in the 70s? Like, I could not stop listening to that album. And my brother, who's like, it, this, I mean, when I talk about someone who knows about rock, like my brother knows everything about rock, and uh, he just like he was like, yeah, would you just listen to the, listen to this album? And I was like, you just changed my life. Like, how did I not know about this? Um, you know, so it's it was less that I was listening to obscure people and more that I was learning about people that maybe we just don't talk about anymore. Like Laura Nero, is it Nero or Nero? Nero. 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 Okay, Laura Nero. I had no idea who she was. Yeah. No idea who she was. And then I was like, how do we not? talk more about her like she was fantastic um you know it's just a lot of people that uh I didn't know about but people do know about them and it was just on me that I didn't know about them how are you in in terms of the writing process itself how hard are you on yourself and how self-critical are you um so I'm I'm pretty self-critical I I'm much more critical about my to myself about deadlines than I am about quality. Um, I know that the quality will eventually get there. That's not true. <laughs> I go through massive periods of time in which I'm like, I'm a failure. It's all crumbling down. People are gonna find out I'm a fraud tomorrow. Um, I mean, with every book that I write, like I, I was literally just now as I was talking, I was like, I'm, I, I do not have the confidence of that because I'm working on a book right now, and I, someone read it. And I was like, what do you think? Is my career over? And they were like, no. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I, I always that, that's think, all it takes. Yeah. One person yes. Yeah, you're yeah. fine. Oh, no. I mean, I was fine for five minutes. And then I was convinced that it's, I'm, it's all going to come crumbling down again. Um, I'm, it's not necessarily that I'm proud of myself, but I can't see myself clearly when I'm writing the book. Once the book is done, I can see it clearly. The part where I'm really quite punishing and I need to change my behavior is that I have a certain word count that I like to keep. And, um, you know, since I've had my daughter, it's harder. Um, there's a, you know, I used to be able to, to start working at nine in the morning. And if I needed to work until nine or 10 o'clock at night, that was fine. If I needed to work on a Saturday, that was fine. I don't have that luxury anymore. I have someone I need to take care of. Um, and so I'm, I'm a little bit more, I'm hard on myself when I don't hit those deadlines. And, and a lot of times my husband is like, this was a self-imposed deadline and there's literally no consequences. <laughs> and I'm like, I, it matters to me, <laughs> you know? Um, I should probably lighten up a little bit. Um, but I'm also writing, you know, I'm trying to write a book a year and that is, um, it's a punishing pace. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. So maybe I should stop doing that. Maybe I should just slow down. Um, but so it, it is finding that balance between um, wanting to create work at a thrilling and stimulating pace, but also not beating myself up when I don't hit that mark every time. Conversely, what's something that you feel you can pat yourself on the back for? What do you feel good about in terms of the process? Um, that's a really good question. Thank you for asking. I've never been asked that before. Um, uh, I, I think from the first book that I wrote, felt very comfortable writing dialogue. Mm. I think... Um, Writing the way people speak and understanding how different people speak differently is something that I really pride myself on. 
So I think that's why writing an oral history felt like a really good fit for me because it's entirely dialogue. And that part was really fun to be able to write a story in which at least every single sentence of it is playing to my strength. I felt very comfortable in that space. Um, and that, that is why um, I am very proud of this, proud of this book for that reason. That I think, I think the characters in this um, sound like real people. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm proud of that. There is, to me, it's interesting because there's a few dynamics in this band. There's brothers. Yep. Right? Couple there's, of brothers. Yep. Right? There's yep. people who are sleeping together. Yep. So there's couples. Yep. There's people who may, might sleep together. Yep. I, I don't know. You have yep. to read the book. Yep. That's um, right. Yeah. And there's people who, you know, want to sleep together and yes. we'll see. Yeah. Now, yeah. The idea I really want to emphasize how many people sleep together in this yeah. book. That is yeah. my bread and butter. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was the 70s. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm curious to know, is in many ways, are you commenting on the idea of, because I've interviewed bands where they say, like, you know, brothers in bands. Yeah. Uh, will always make up. But I look at yeah. the Gallagher's and I go, I don't yeah, think the are ever getting back not together true. again. But they yes. talk about the kinks and the kinks are back together. Yeah. So yeah. there is something perhaps. Sure. But is there a cautionary sort of tale that you're, that you're sort of um, endorsing, not endorsing, but talking about in terms of if you're in a band with your significant other yes. or your brother yes. or your best friend, yes. those are shark infested waters. Yes. I definitely, I mean, look, what I wanted to do was make this band as messy as possible. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to do that is to have people conflating personal and, and professional relationships. When you have a professional relationship with someone that you have a personal relationship with, there is no way to delineate a clear boundary. And I think that makes things difficult. I love my brother to death, could not be in a band with him. That would go for about three days, and then we'd probably not talk to each other for three years. Um, you know, it's being able to live your life beside someone is very different than being able to create something with them. And confusing the two um, can be very difficult. I'm very fortunate in that I do sometimes work with my husband, and I see as we're working together, because he's also a writer, that that system works because my husband is an incredibly patient and nice person who tolerates me being a terror. Um, <laughs> it's not because I have learned how to collaborate. It's because he has learned how to be like, slow your roll. And I'm like, oh, okay, I've crossed the line. Um, it's, it's very difficult and it gets very personal very quickly. So when you have two sets of brothers, when you have you know, multiple couples, that is a ticking time bomb. And yeah, sure, maybe the brotherhood survives it. I'm not sure the band does. Maybe the band survives and the brotherhood doesn't. Maybe um, the relationships don't survive, but the band does, or the band survives and the relationships don't. And we've seen, you know, versions of that, like Oasis, but there's also, you know, Fleetwood Mac has, you know, there's a divorce couple right, you know, in the middle of the band, and they're still going strong, and they're both in this band, and it's been you know, at this point, 40 years since they divorced. So there's a lot of different ways to get past that messiness, but you can't avoid the messiness. Um, and, you know, messiness is just good drama. 
It, yeah. <laughs> I also wonder if it goes to like a law firm too. So right. that if you're working with your husband or your wife at a law firm, you go, totally. oh, hey, how was work today? Well, you were there, idiot. Right. No, right? totally. So <laughs> I wonder if there's some tension that in, in any milieu. Yes. It, it, I don't, I mean, yes, it's in the world of rock because that's more glamorous, right? And we want to escape into this, this very um, like glitzy, seedy world. But but the dynamics exist in, in any relationship. Mm-hmm. When you work with someone and you live with them or they're your sibling, that's a different sort of working relationship that has to be treated as sacred because there's much more at stake if it goes sour. And I think the people in this band don't quite see that. What about getting back to memory a mm-hmm. little bit? Yeah. Um, playing with that so much. Mm-hmm. What were you trying to say in terms of, if I heard Adam Gopnik once say that, that, that memory is the clumsiest editor. Yeah, right? yeah. And like even even mm-hmm. like two brothers who are in the same house will have different memories of the same thing. Yes. And I wonder what what and for you, how did that function in the book? What were you sort of saying about memory and how they are deceptive? Yeah. So I think that we really trust our memory far more than we should. And mm-hmm. I oftentimes like I will be like, No, I know exactly where it was. It was at this street and this street and it happened on this day and I'm completely wrong, but I believe it with all of my heart. And and everyone does that. Um, and I think when, when it's not necessarily something that I was burning to talk about, it's more that it came up organically over the course of writing this book, because I want to be honest. And I honestly believe that all of these people don't know what they're talking about because it happened so long ago. And they're all creating a narrative that serves their point of view from where they are right now it's all confirmation bias it's all hindsight bias it's all of that um and so what they're the story that each person in this book is telling you serves them to some degree they are telling you that because they are telling themselves the story of their life and when we tell ourselves the story of our lives which we do every day we're doing it moving ourselves toward a certain goal which is who we are today and we leave things out and we shade things. And if something could be, you know, a little bit more this or a little bit more that, we're subconsciously choosing the version of it that serves the story that we're trying to tell ourselves. I think analyzing the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves is always a good thing to do. You always, you know, even even if it is something as simple as, as music, I really found in writing this book, I had told myself for a long time, like, oh, I don't like 70s rock. That was just a thing that I thought about myself. And I was completely wrong in not listening to music that I really, truly loved because I had just said, well, I know this about myself and it's, I don't like this. And I had just decided it. And I don't know where I decided it. I must have been 15 and heard, you know, some song. I was like, I don't care for this. And then that was it. Um, anytime we're telling ourselves about ourselves, we're not listening. And, and so that's what a lot of these people are doing. They're trying to tell you a story that they want to end a certain way. Um, and I hope that as you're reading it, there's some fun in questioning, well, why are they saying this? What do they get out of this? Um, even if they don't realize that they're shading what they're saying, why are they shading that, it that way? What, how does it serve them? I mean, even to the point where someone will say, he came at me really hard. Yeah. And then the guy who came at him really hard says, yeah. I spoke to him gently. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. I That's took him exactly aside. Right. right. And, and here's, here's what I think is so interesting about that is like, yeah, I, I suppose there could be a version of this where one of them's lying. But I think what's more honest is that they both 100% believe that they're telling the truth because of how they see themselves. 
oh, well, I would never treat someone that way. So I couldn't possibly have done it the way that they're saying because I don't see myself as someone that would do that. You know, and, and again, like we're, there's a very, um, one of the main, not main conflicts, but, but just like a sort of consistent conflict is Billy Lee Singer and Eddie, um, who is the rhythm guitarist, um, they, Eddie really hates Billy. He feels on a consistent basis that he's being um, mistreated by Billy. And Billy barely knows Eddie exists. And so um, the way that Eddie sees malice in every single interaction and the way that Billy sees that his actions couldn't possibly have malice because he didn't mean for them to be malicious. And they're both wrong. They're both completely wrong. Um, but the, the answer and the, the truth of it is probably somewhere in the middle there. So it's, it's sort of like how it happened, how you received yeah, that Yeah, I moment. mean, it, it's your perspective, and it's also, you know, you have to be a really aware person to go back and say, you know what, I think I was a little bit of a jerk. That, most people don't do that. Um, and certainly not people that are as consistently rewarded for their behavior as musicians are. Um, you know, Billy is like a really handsome lead singer with an incredible family and all these women that, that want his attention. He has very little reason to look inside himself and question whether or not he's a jerk. Um, and he probably should, but he's, he doesn't. And so that's, you know, when he's telling the story, he's not questioning whether he did anything wrong in certain, in, it just wouldn't occur to him. Like, no, I, I was perfectly nice. What are you talking about? I'm not sure that he's right, but that's how he feels. He's still a rock star in that way. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, you you don't you only change when circumstances force you to look inward. Right. And there are circumstances in his life that you see that he does start to look inward, and he really does a lot of work to become a better man in the areas in which he's bumped up against something and realized that he needs to pull back. But in a lot of ways, there's nothing to bump up against. You know, he he is um, he is very successful, and I don't think. You know, failure is the only thing that, that makes you change. Success doesn't make you change. It just makes you more of what you are, which is almost never a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Uh, let's talk about your discipline as a writer. Mm -hmm. um, it's always interesting to hear. Were you, from an early age, were you always really disciplined? Because you seem like you really are. Thank you. That, it's a mirage. Um, I, I, as a kid, I never did my homework. I certainly never read the books in school. Um, I was very much, I lived in a house where like, no, like there just wasn't a lot of authority. Like my mom was very trusting of like, yeah, you'll, you'll do what you're supposed to do. And I did, but, um, you know, I was like, if I could get an A minus without doing the work, I was not going to do the work just to get an A plus. Like that was not going to happen. Um, and it wasn't until I got to college and I started to realize um, just how ambitious I was in what I wanted to do that um, I started working incredibly hard and um, and I it, it wasn't until I realized that I wanted to become a writer which was a was a bit well after college that I started to understand that that self-discipline and um, making sure that I'm holding myself to a certain standard regardless of whether or not anyone else is really kicked in for me. And it wasn't necessarily something that I had to learn. It was entirely based on, I have a goal now and I'm hungry for that goal and I will do whatever it takes to get to that goal. But it was hunger that did it. It was, it was the ambition of wanting something. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a learn, it wasn't a, 
It wasn't an innate behavior. Uh, I had to see a goal and say, well, the only way to get there is to work incredibly hard and I want it bad enough, so that's what I'm gonna do. Did it surprise you that you found that you had that resolve and you had that hunger? It did, and it's funny because now, <clears throat> you know, I've been um, writing for um, a, about 12 years and when I look at myself now, I think the way I see myself, the way you know my husband reflects me back to me, the way a lot of my reps do, the people that surround me, the narrative is how hard working I am. Oh, you know, that I'm so diligent, I work so hard, I produce at such a fast rate. That's what people are telling me. And again, I have to stop and question the, the, the story that I'm telling myself about myself, right? Because what is being told to me is, good job, you're working really hard, we're all really proud of you, that's very impressive. And I like that. I like that people are um, proud of how hard I'm working. So I'm working harder because you've told me that I work hard, so I'm gonna make right. sure that I work hard. You've said you like that about me, so I'm gonna keep doing it. And it's like at some point you just sort of say, well, work is not everything. And just because I told myself that I'm a person who works really hard doesn't mean that I can't put the work down for a minute and experience some joy in my life or some balance. And But again, it's like that's, that's the narrative that I've started to believe about myself for the, for the past you know, 15 years. It's like, I don't stop until I get it. I'm going up that mountain. I'm going to get to the top of that mountain. Nothing's going to stop me. It's like, I don't know, maybe something should stop me for like a minute. You know, like I'm not, I'm not sure that, um, you know, working, working, working at the pace that I am is serving a larger good. I think at some point I started doing it and then people told me I was doing it. So I kept doing it because I was told that I do it. Um, and it's maybe time for some self-reflection about that of, of you know, um, having some balance in my life. Is that where the book a year yeah. thing came from? Yeah, I mean, the book a year thing is like, the first time that I signed the deal, it was, um, I was offered a two book deal, which is, which is sometimes rare nowadays. And it's like, well, I never thought I'd get the first one. So if you wanna give me a second one, I'm gonna do that. Tell me when it's due, I will have it for you. And that book was done, my second book was done and sent into my publisher about four months before it was due. Wow. Because I was so eager and so ready to prove that I could do this. Um, and now the book that I'm writing has taken me over a year to write and it stings. I'm, I'm like, it's like a fact about myself that I'm like, I never take more than a year to write a book. And it's like, well, maybe the book that I'm writing is more complicated. Maybe it's m more difficult to write. Maybe it's gonna be a better book because of that. You know, maybe I don't always have to be this person that writes at this quick pace. And I've definitely talked a lot with my family about once I finish the book that I'm working on now, maybe I take two years to write a book. And, and because I haven't done that. And so maybe that leaves me somewhere better. Maybe that leaves me, you know, maybe I do it and I say, you know what? I will stretch to, to fill the two years when if, I just had one year, I would, you know, I don't know. I don't know what happens. Um, and so I wanna ask that question. If I take a little bit more time, what happens to the work? Is it better, is it worse? Because you can still be the person who works hard, but just does it over a two year period. Yeah, and also like, maybe I don't have to be the person that works hard, right. you know? Right, like, right. like maybe I can just be the person that works a regular amount. Like, right. I don't know where, it's a very American thing to be like, well, I'm busy, I don't have any time to breathe. I'm working so hard and I'm, you know, and um, and I told myself that I was working this hard to get to a certain place. 
but like where's that place when I'm, when is enough right um that that's a question that i'm asking um myself every day now because i'm, I'm just not sure what the answer is and i want to i want to figure that out yeah a friend of mine is a professional juggler and he was at the airport once. That and went he, a uh, different way than yeah. I thought. <laughs> and he was at the airport, and he was bored. He was waiting for a flight. And he took out 12 tennis balls. Okay. And he juggled them on the ground, not okay. in the air. Yeah. So he had 12 balls going at once. Oh, my God. And this kid said, how many can you do? Mm-hmm. And my friend said, is 12 not enough? Right. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. How many more do you need? But that's exactly it, right? Like, I will just, I, I would say, well, give me another one, give me another one, give me another right. one. And then eventually all the balls are going to fall down. Right. This is not a game that ends well for anyone. Like I, you can pack in as much, you know, productivity as you possibly can. But at some point the Peter principle kicks in. Like I'm going to rise to the level of my incompetence. I can't keep trying to best myself. When is it okay to just be, be good, not great, or to be fine with being great, not best? I don't, I don't know. But um, it definitely, when we're talking about something as, um, as subjective with art or mm. a book, commercial art, what, am, what, what is my goal? Isn't the goal just to give people a book that they have a great experience with? Isn't, isn't that the goal? Why is my goal also to do it faster than I did it before? Uh, that, that just seems pointless. So yeah, I'm working on being cool with just the 12 balls. Like that's yeah. really impressive, right? So. Um, right, that's very good. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And like if someone's like, we'll see if I get there, but I'm hoping to like mature to the level where if someone's like, can you do 13? I'd be like, I can do 12, that's what I can do. Right. Right, right now I'm too eager to be like, yeah, throw the 13th in there, let's see if I can do it. Um, but it, growth will come when I'm like, I know who I am and 12 is enough. Right, and the bigger question is, why do you need 13? Yes, right. This is very much reflection on you yeah. and what you're trying yeah. to do. I don't need to bring, take that on. Yeah, exactly. How are you with compliments? Um, that is an interesting question. Um, I thought that I lived for them, and, then, um, and now I um, have a hard time processing them. Mm. And I think it's because um, <coughs> it's not why I do it. And I think I thought it was for a really long time. I thought, like, you know, deep in my heart, like, why do I do this? It's like, the compliments. Um, and it's not. It turns out I, I just want you to have a really good reading experience. I don't need to be told how good of a job I did giving you that reading experience. My feeling of pride doesn't come from um, being told. My feeling of pride comes from whether you felt good or not. And that's not actually something that I can... Um, directly experience it if you read this book and over the period of time that you read it you feel lost in a world that you wanted to spend some time in you feel moved by something you feel like it offered an escape from you know your everyday that's where my pride comes from and it's actually a very passive form of pride um, it's not an active one because I'm not there over your shoulder you know experiencing you reading it I just have to trust that um, that you're having that experience. So, um, so compliments are a little bit tough because um, I don't, I just wanna know that you had a good time. And I don't, I don't need you to make me feel good about it, I just wanna know that I made you feel good, if that makes sense. And last, and then we'll open up to questions. Um, I know there's a lot of talk about this being filmed. Yeah, yeah. That seems like it's happened quickly. 
Yes, it right? happened. Yes, it doesn't usually happen like that. Yeah, I we sold the rights um, before the book came out, which is which is you That's know crazy. Yeah, it is really crazy, and I was incredibly fortunate. And it does make it a lot easier during this period of time. There's a, a little bit less hand wringing because this book is going to have a a, a few chances to make its way into the world. You know, you always you ha you always have at least one. But if you have a hardcover and a paperback release, that gives you two. It's like, you know, we have this experience of the hardcover and then in a year the paperback will come out and it'll find a different audience and, and a new audience at a different price point and a different type of book. And then when the TV show comes out, that will be a new audience of people that enjoyed the story maybe on TV and so they want to read the book or maybe they just enjoyed it on TV. Um, I haven't experienced that last part yet ever before and so I'm very, very excited about it. It's interesting because I was telling one of my students today about tonight, mm -hmm. and uh, and she said, "Who do you think should play Daisy Jones?" Yeah, and I said, "I could see someone like Bella Thorne, mm -hmm. right?" Yeah, I've heard and that she, before. And she yes. said, yes. "She said Bella Thorne. She's old." And I said, "She's twenty one. <laughs> she's, she's like a tiny baby." <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Like I'm a pile of dirt. She's, she's <laughs> yeah. old. Ditto. Um, yeah. But have they talked casting yet, or is yeah. it premature? It's premature, but I will say it is the thing that I'm the most excited about. Yeah. Um, you know, I I my first job out of college was working in in casting and so uh and i really enjoyed that job and so the fact that now something that i've written will be cast uh i've been very um eager every every time i hear from anyone in the production i listen and and i say mm -hmm, yes music supervisor great love it mm -hmm. producer great have you thought about casting yet <laughs> i'm like not you know i'm just trying to get to that question um, I think it'll probably be this summer or fall before I hear anything yeah. uh, or even hear ideas, but um, I'm so excited about it. I'm, I can't even tell you. It's like my number one thing that I'm curious about. Let's open it up for questions. If you guys have questions, and Taylor can answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about the, the rights being sold, uh, we've heard many authors talk about how their the rights are being, have been sold and then nothing happens. Yes. This sounds like it's actually already yes. set to happen yes so I so every other book that I've done has sold um, but it hasn't made its way to production and that's what happens most of the time a lot of books get optioned and nothing happens um, this one because I sold it to Reese Witherspoon's production company Hello wow. Sunshine and they went and sold it to um, Amazon Prime it is going into production. So this will most definitely be a television show. Um, most likely, I would think you could watch it sometime next year. Wow, cool. That's like a fast track. I mean, you're, yeah. that process is a super fast track process. Yeah, yeah. Which, it usually takes years. Yes, it does. And, right? and yeah, I mean, and it's possible it will be 2021, but, um, <clears throat> but they've been working on this for a while. And so we're now getting to the part where, you know, the, the snowball really starts to take yeah. uh, shape. And so um, I think, you know, 2020, 2021, there will be something to watch. That's cool. Yeah. Questions? Yeah. Yeah. So I was wondering when you were writing the book, mm -hmm. cause, um, do you ever imagine like the voices in your head? Yeah. Oh, all the time. I think, I think that's what's so gratifying about writing a book, especially one like this, is that mm -hmm. I get to know the characters... Um, so well at some point that I do feel like I understand them in the way that they would talk differently from myself, which is really nice. And, and it also means, especially when it's someone as 
um, you know, sort of larger than life as Daisy Jones or Evelyn Hugo. Um, I, I do feel like they stay with me a little bit, um, which, which before I started writing, I would have thought it was like a really pretentious thing to say, but it really feels true to me. Um, if I could go back and write Evelyn Hugo again, she's right in my head. Like I could tell you exactly what she would say. Um, and I, I really like that because you spend so much time losing yourself in this world. It's nice to think that you can go back when you want to. Yeah, quick. Since how, what kind of rights have you given up? I mean, this is your baby now. Yeah. Somehow it's moved on from into another world. Yes. How are you going to feel about, I mean, how much have you given up? I've given the whole farm. I've given them everything. <laughs> okay, so um, how are you going to feel about yeah so here's what I'll say um, if it was a Reese Witherspoon I might be a little bit nervous but she and her production company have the same priority that I have which is telling stories about women's inner lives and so if I was selling this to someone else I might say well you need to make sure that it remains Daisy's story or you know please don't cut out this or that um, I'm selling it to someone who likes it for the same reason that I like it which is not always the case and I've, I've done that before and I've sold it to someone and I've realized, oh, what you like about this is not what I liked about it and you're taking it in a different direction. Mm -hmm. um, and even, you know what, to be blunt, even when that happened, I was okay with it because at some point you have to divorce yourself from, from the piece that you wrote. It's not mine anymore, it's all of yours. You're all gonna have a different experience with it than I had writing it. You're gonna bring things to it that I don't necessarily bring to it. If I feel like I need to have some control over the interpretation, I'm gonna really stress myself out. I'm gonna be chasing everyone on the internet, being like, no, that's not what I meant. Um, you know, I can't do that. So so I have to let it go. I've let it go. It's yours. It's Reese Witherspoon's to do um, what what she wants. Um, I'm talking a very big game right now. Let's see what happens when she makes it. And then I'm like, it shouldn't have been that. Um, but but I, I do feel a little bit of peace of saying, this is my work, and now someone's gonna take the story and do their work with it. Because the book is untouched. I mean, they, they're not touching the book. They're right, just interpreting. Right, they can't. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Kathleen, you were going to get it. Well, one thing I've noticed about your books is every single one is so different. It's like, Thank you. Um, I mean, there's a thread. I mean, I love that Vic shows up in both yes, books. Yes, yes. So I, I knew yes. exactly who you were talking yes. about. And, and he's, uh, he's but, coming again. You'll see more of him. Oh, wow. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Before I get but, myself um, into trouble. I just thought that you you got into that world in such a way. I mean, every single book you've had, you're in that world. And Thank your reader's you. in that world with you. Thank you. I, it really comes from me wanting to occupy it more than anything. I want to be there. I want to be in 60s Hollywood with Evelyn Hugo telling me how she fooled everybody. Um, you know, and, and lived her life as best she could. Um, I want to be on the Sunset Strip in the 70s when somebody like Daisy Jones could show up and, and blow everybody away. I want to be there. And so I think that that fuels me through through creating this world because I want to inhabit it. And, and so I want it to feel real for me. In making it feel real for me, hopefully I make it feel real for you. But it happens somewhat organically because, because I'm so drawn to it myself. Um, and so the fact that what works for me is also working for you is is exciting. Well, I think that one of the things, especially with in the, in um, Daisy Jones and the Six, you really get the essence of these characters. I mean, you see that Eddie hates yeah. Billy. And <laughs> yeah. Every time he's given any opportunity to touch, 
smack about yeah. Billy. He's yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then there's Karen, who's kind of ambivalent about the whole world. Right. And then you've got Graham, who's kind of a space cadet, and he's living in his own little personal Idaho of yeah. I'm in love. And yes. But it's like each character is so precisely drawn. And Thank that's you. what I found. I found that they were believable, and, and I was trying to think in my head, and, and I know Alex and I have had this conversation, that I was trying to think who they really were. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's like these, these people had to have existed. Yeah, well, thank you. I think I think what it is is I just care. You talked about that, too. I care about each of the characters a lot. Um, and I can't write about them unless I care about them or if I, or I, I find something to have a great affection for within them. And so... Um, I find I find myself wanting to do them, um, do right by them in in putting together a complicated rendering of a person because I I, I do convince myself they're real a little bit in this crazy sort of way. How's your re-entry from that world into your real life where your daughter needs you? <clears throat> yeah. You know you have stuff you have to do. Yeah. How is the re-entry from one world to the next? You know what? I think if I wasn't married to a writer, it would be harder. But I'm really fortunate in that because my husband's also a writer and he works on things that are completely different than what I work on, but we talk to each other about our work a lot, I, I have like a soft landing. Um, my daughter comes in kicking and screaming and, and has no interest in Daisy Jones at all. Um, but but um, my husband is much more, you know, if I can't figure something out, I can talk about it at the dinner table. Um, and that does, it does make it easier. I'm not living as much in my own head as many writers have to um, because I have someone who is following along with the book as it's being written and engaging with it and I can bounce things off of him. Um, so it, it makes it a little bit easier. I definitely have no sense in my own life of when is work time and when is not because you can think anywhere <laughs> and writing is just thinking like it's just a lot a lot a lot of thinking um and so i will be laying in bed at four in the morning and thinking um about work which is not good um but but i am fortunate in that the other person who lives in my house is doing the same thing so it's not quite so difficult questions that down there yeah um, so in the line of having the characters' voices in their head, um, audiobooks are their own kind of production, and yeah. I immediately recognized Judy Greer's voice. Yes, very wife. good. Um, and just and from what we heard of Daisy, her voice is very raspy. And, mm-hmm. uh, I know authors don't have much say in those kinds of things, mm-hmm. and I mean it's great that I mean not all books with casts get casts, yes. like ensemble narration. Yes. So um, do the do the voices that um, were cast, do they fit with your imagination? Do they bring something more to mm-hmm. on the page? Um, that's a really great question, and I'm glad that you asked it because I'm really excited to talk about this audiobook. Um, I cast it, um, which was really, really thrilling. It was also really difficult, and I did not anticipate that. Um, but I worked with one of the producers at Random House, and we came up with... Um, you know, ideally who we would want to play these parts and started calling in favors to make it happen. And I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate. I have worked, you know, sort of in and out of Hollywood for a number of years and that has afforded me relationships with specific people who I've never asked for favors before and this was my time where I asked the favor. 
So Daisy Jones is played by Jennifer Beals, um, who is, yeah, she's so great. And she, um, I'm very fortunate to call her a friend of mine. And so I called her and I said, um, would you please, please, please. And she couldn't have been more lovely about it. And she took it so seriously. And, you know, she really could have phoned it in. You know, I, I was asking a favor, um, but she didn't. She engaged with the character so purely. And she had so many questions about, you know, what would Daisy sound like? And and really, like, very thoughtful. She, you know, because Daisy, Daisy has a British... Um, father and a, and a French mother but she lives in California and, and Jennifer was like so would she sound more British or would she sound and I was like I trust you you know go for it and so a lot of that grit that you hear in her voice like that's Jennifer making a choice and it was a great choice and it sounds fantastic um, so that was a favor I called in Robin Lee um, who is an author in her own right and also an actress plays Simone Jackson who's a disco singer um, she's another friend of mine who I very humbly asked for a favor um, Judy Greer um, I a friend of mine is the head of casting at Apple and so she she asked that favor for me um, Benjamin Bratt is in it as well. Um, yeah, which is. Well, you guys like the Benjamin wait, Bratt thing. Can I tell you, this happens every single time. This is, I think Benjamin Bratt is low key the man that every single woman on the planet is attracted to. And I did not know it until I started saying his name. And the room just like, it's like a wildfire. Yeah. Um, we're, we're rep by the same management company. And so I called in a favor there. Pablo Schreiber, same thing. Um, I really like cashed in my chips for this. And it was very stressful because it was like down to the wire and the things do and I'm, you know, calling people and asking for favors. But it came together in such a way that I, you know, normally when people say, you know, should I get the audiobook? Should I get the paperback? Should I get, you know, yeah, I'm really proud of this audiobook. And I think it, I really think that it's very special. Um, and I'm really proud of, of the work that went into it. And the other thing that I will say, the little Easter egg within it is that there's a there's a character who has one line and is played by my husband um, and let me tell you it was the best day of his life <laughs> he felt like a movie star when I dropped him off at the, the recording place and he goes he was he was five minutes he literally had to say one line and I think he wanted to stay all day he was just <laughs> smitten and so happy um, so he personally will love it to know if you buy the audiobook that you can hear him. <laughs> He's a real ham. There's one more question down there, and then we'll sign some books. Did you curate the uh, Spotify list? I did. Excellent. That's all me. I really enjoy it. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, is sort of follow-up to the four. So not only are you giving up the creativeness of creating, it sounds like, a television show, but what about the songs themselves yeah. and the music? Yeah. They're going to make it. And and I'm not the least bit concerned about it. I, I really am not. And maybe I'm maybe I'm naive, but um, I'm not a musician. I'm never gonna I'm never going to have the skill to make those songs um, into songs. It's not a skill that, that I have or one that I am interested in cultivating. I'm I I just don't think I would be you very good. The song in your head. I do and I don't. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have a I don't have a way it's supposed to sound. I hear a melody so that I can write it, but I don't feel very tied to that melody. It's all very amorphous and flexible to me. Mm. So um, I, I'm really excited to listen to the songs. And it's possible that I will hear them and be like, this isn't right, but I'm gonna keep it to myself. Um, and, and the other thing too is I, um, so Reese Witherspoon is producing it. The people that are writing it 
um, are, are this um, writing team, Scott Newsetter and Michael Weber, who I have been such a fan of for such a long time. Um, they did 500 Days of Summer, which is a, a oh, movie that I really love. Yeah, they did um, The Fault in Our Stars, which is another really great adaptation. They were just nominated for an Oscar, not this past year, but the year before for The Disaster Artist, um, which is another adaptation. They're really, really good. And they have incredible taste in music. Scott Newstone and I sat down and we had lunch and we were talking about, you know, why I wrote this book. And we were naming all the same bands and loving all the same songs and, and just agreeing on a taste level. So I just feel like it's in very good hands and I feel like it's very likely that the version of the story and the band that you will hear is, is as close as anyone could get to what I have in my head. But let's check in in 2021. Maybe I'll be trashing the whole thing. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I have a lot of faith, but um, obviously I don't know until I see it. Uh Congratulations on a marvelous book. Thank you so much. Really nice. Thank you, Thank you for being here. And uh, will you sign some books? I would love to. Okay, so yes. we'll go to the back. That's me playing live with uh, Taylor Jenkins Reid. If you want more information about her, go to her website, taylorjenkinsreid.com, and that's Reid with an I, okay? If you want more information about me, just go to alexgreenonline.com. That's green with two E's. Now, you can follow me on Twitter, at Ember's Editor, and you can follow me on Instagram, at Ember's Podcast. If you're old-fashioned and you want to email me from your desktop computer, well, who am I to stop you? editor at stereoembersmagazine.com drop me a line maybe there's somebody you want me to book on the show or maybe there's somebody you want me to bring back to the show i'm curious to know who that is or maybe there's someone you want me to never bring back to the show now i'm really curious drop me a line tell me what's up and uh, and we'll go from there okay all right now if you're on itunes please subscribe to the podcast and subscribe to bombshell radio please leave us a rating and a nice comment or two I know you think no one reads these things, but guess what? Four in the morning, I'm stumbling around my house in my underwear, and what am I doing? I'm reading your comments. I don't know why I'm in my underwear. I just, I just thought that made the most sense. Now I'm sorry I said it, but I won't take it back because it's actually true. And trust me, that's not breaking news. That's secondhand news. Let's close things off with Fleetwood Mac. I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers. The podcast. I'm the-